Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Suzanne Mitschke, who is the CEO and co-founder of Citrus Labs. This is a company that went through the Techstars Accelerator in 2016. She's also at Forbes 30 Under 30. Now, Citrus Labs is an end-to-end solution for patient recruitment and retention. In this episode, we go through how this company started, Suzanne and her co-founders, their experience going through Techstars, how they've grown it since, how they've navigated this global pandemic of COVID and how they've pivoted from that to have a software product as well. So many insights in this episode behind launching and growing a business and also how to get into the world of entrepreneurship. As always, the show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Suzanne Mitschke, the CEO and co-founder of Citrus Labs. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, great to have you on here and talking about Citrus Labs, which was formerly MindMate. I want to clarify on that then. So, Tell me how how MindMate got started. Uh, We'll eventually get into also how it kind of shifted into Citrus Labs as well. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I met my two co-founders back in Scotland in the United Kingdom. So I'm originally from Germany, actually, but lived in in many different places. I studied uh, in Vienna and Austria, did my bachelor degree there, then did my master degree uh, in Scotland, in Glasgow, at the University of Glasgow. Uh, We had a great time there. And there I met uh, Roger and Patrick, my two co-founders. And we started MindMate because uh, Roger cared for seven years for his grandfather with Alzheimer's. And that led us to develop this app to actually help uh, people with, uh, you know, early stages of memory loss, uh, but also, you know, generally baby boomers uh, who want to stay fit uh, and active. And uh, the MindMate app actually provides a mix of physical exercises, advice on proper nutrition, uh, as well as fun and interactive games. Uh, we did run a study with the University of Glasgow back in, I think, 2017, 2018, where it showed that actually people that use MindMate can remember more things when, for example, running errands or remembering appointments uh, mm. compared to people who are not using the MindMate app. So that was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, as an app business, you have to think about how are you going to make money? You have to, <laughs> you know, create a business model around it because just raising funds and, you know, having a cool app that doesn't work anymore in this economy, uh, <laughs> having lots of users. Um So we actually tried out many different business models. We tried out subscription. We tried out in-app purchases. We also sold this to uh, nursing homes uh, back in the United Kingdom, but also then uh, in the United States as well. And we even got reimbursed by the NHS, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, which is an extremely big deal. That's huge, Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really huge. Um, But to be fair, it, it wasn't, where we actually wanted to be as a company um, because in those nursing homes, uh, we were also then kind of seen as the IT department. So they were calling us about, um, you know, Wi-Fi is down and the laptop doesn't work and the software doesn't start. So this is not where we actually wanted to be as a company. Um, So 
Um, this was also when we went to the United States. We went to the United States as a company in 2016 um, because we did Textas in New York. Mm, yep. Um, and we basically started Textas as a company without a business model because that was the time where we decided <laughs> to not pursue selling MindMade to nursing homes and yeah. you know we we did the whole thing we did improved our product um we what else did we do we grew a lot uh we grew a lot in users and then pharmaceutical companies um you know noted us and this is how we transitioned to citrus labs which <sighs> is now a company to actually streamline the patient recruitment in clinical trials Okay, there, that's awesome. There's a few things to go back to. I want to know how the Techstars decision came about. How did you decide that, hey, we're going to move to the US, we're going to go through Techstars? How did that come about? So it's uh, different reasons. Um, so number one is, um, you know, in 2015, when we started, also 2016, startups were fairly still like early in Europe. United Kingdom is a little bit better than continental Europe when it comes to startups, but many people were like looking at us and telling us, oh, I'm so sorry, you have to start your own business. Why don't you get into a big bank or in a, <laughs> you know, one of the top four consultancies and be a consultant and make big money? So I think it's kind of the attitude towards, star towards startups that really like pushed us towards the United States. And um, we actually wanted to do like a good accelerator and Texas seemed to be the right accelerator. And we really wanted to do the one in, in New York. Um, Alex Iskold was back then the managing director and we heard extremely good things about him. We connected to lots of founders um, that actually went through his program and we really wanted to get into the New York program and then we got in, which was extremely great. Yeah, that's amazing. And with that too, then, so you said he kind of changed ideas during or right before Techstars or during Techstars? It was during Texas. Our idea hasn't changed. Um, we we wanted to, you know, do the mind made up. We just needed a business model. And then the pharmaceutical angle kind of popped up during Texas. Gotcha. And then just for reference for people who are even considering tech stars, like what was that experience like for you and the team? Like what were some of the things you did while you were while you were at Tech Stars? It sounds a little bit cheesy, but it it was really life changing. Um so especially coming from Europe, uh, doing business in the United States is extremely different compared to Europe. In Europe, it's more like you have to be down to earth, you know, you don't have to exaggerate and you don't have to be like this kind of I call it like pitchy, right? You don't yeah. pitch your idea and tell everybody how great you are and how great your company is. Um, and this is what I think we learned during Techstars, how to how to pitch in a company and how to build a company in the United States. And uh, this was really one of the, the best experience uh, of, of my life so far. And obviously also um, with the program being very structured, the first third is all about product a second third is all about you know growing and then the last third is is all about you know fundraising and i think one of the the biggest learning for us was really how to run this fundraising process with that too then i mean 
what are some things that you experienced through fundraising and how long did that process take for you to then ra- raise funds for, for Citrus Labs at that, at that time? Um, so fundraising is never easy, right? It's yeah. a, it can be a nightmare, <laughs> <laughs> especially because you're talking to so many VCs and then you're getting one meeting, you're getting two meetings, you're getting three meetings. You're really involved with these you know, investors, and then they say, no, that's a huge bummer. And going through this process like 80, 90 times can be really nerve wracking. Um, but in the end, I think it, it worked out for us. Um, and it's all about running a very tight process. So I think to to get to like a term sheet, it should take like three, four, maybe maximum of six months, right? But once yeah. you have that term sheet, everything is happening very quickly. From that then, so from getting that, from kind of your initial investments then, what was the next steps you took to to really grow grow the business then? So our first real investment was about one and a half years after Textas. Um, so we completed Textas in September 2016, and our first real institutional round was in December 2017. Um and after that, we hired a couple of people to really scale sales and really, you know, make revenue and really also find this product market fit. And unfortunately, now that, you know, we found a really good spot, uh, you know, sales were through the roof, then the pandemic hit in <laughs> March this year, right? And, uh, you know, we, we have to, we, we got through a couple of pivots now and now we are back on track again. Well, take take me through that. You know, since you brought it up, I mean, w- what was your approach once you you know heard about the pandemic happening, and and what how did it affect your business? Yeah, so um, we do with Citrus Labs, we do patient recruitment for clinical trials, and now with the pandemic, many patients they actually scared to go to doctors, and most clinical trials. Actually, the a patient has to visit a doctor, right? Um, they yeah. have to visit the doctor sometimes even like uh, twice a month, sometimes even like every week. And for some studies, they have to go there at least like once a month, right? So the, the patient-doctor relationship is for the trials we work with extremely huge and now patients are scared. So we basically lost, we, we went from a lot of revenue to... Not a lot of revenue, which, which really, really sucks. It's tough. Um, yeah. And what what we looked at is we anyway wanted to build some software around patient recruitment as well to streamline the process because we found that many, many doctors and many sites, research sites we actually worked with, um, they had issues, you know, with the whole organization of um, the the recruitment process some patients fell under the cracks you know there are huge issues also with patient retention in clinical trials with adherence to protocols in clinical trials and now our new path forward through the pandemic uh, was to actually sell software to help um, you know sites that already had patients in clinical trials um, to actually increase their retention and lower their dropouts with that then with the partners you're you're working with for this i mean how are you how are you acquiring one before the patients and then how are you acquiring the other side of it as well uh to to grow this to, to grow citrus labs yeah it's fairly easy it's a direct sales approach <laughs> <laughs> 
that that works. <laughs> was there anything in particular that was more more useful and helpful than others in terms of uh, how you went about that? Yeah, I think it's all about messaging, right? And all about understanding the customer's problem. I think this is this is extremely important. Talking to customers constantly, even though you know many of our customers they are not recruiting right now for for their clinical trials, we are still in touch with them and ask them what the issues currently are, how we can help them, and this is unveiling like lots of different issues you know, our customers have. And then based on that, we um, develop products to actually help them. And I think this is one thing that many founders don't do a lot is talking, actually talking to their customers instead of just, you know, I think you have this problem. Is this true? <laughs> yes or no? Um, yeah. Usually when this is happening, then many founders already build a product. With that too, how I mean, how frequently are you having these discussions with customers, especially when you're not necessarily using them right away? Like, how how does that cadence work for you guys? So we talk to customers every day. That's what we try to do. At least um, <laughs> we try to catch up with each of our customers at least once a month. So we try to really have these customer conversations every day. And with that too, you mentioned then you're looking for different problems potentially to solve and then obviously creating products, services off of that. How are you prioritizing that in terms of which products you'll offer first or like what, what solutions you'll offer from that? Because I imagine you may be getting some, some different types of uh, feedback from customers. How do you prioritize which ones you're, you're going to go after and build? Yeah, so feedback from customers is one thing, but also looking at data that we already have, like objective data is another thing, right? It's basically you have the subjective stuff from customers on the one side, and then you have objective data from usage from current products. Um, so this is how we how we prioritize. So obviously, um, you know, subjective data is important, but we're also looking at the objective data that we are collecting. Gotcha. So combine combine those both. Please. Yeah. Super helpful, yeah. And with the with the, the platform now, with the software side of things, like what what has been the challenge in launching the software side of it as you've had to pivot because of the the craziness of COVID? Um, you mean you mean in terms of pivoting from patient recruitment to software? Yeah, I'm curious on how that transition has gone for you. I think the transition went very smoothly, um, better than we expected. Um, and it, it basically, it, it was in our mind, like l launching this product, this platform was in our mind for a couple of months now, but we haven't had the time to actually build it um, because we were so engrossed in our work on the patient recruitment side. So actually the pandemic also was good for us, even not from a revenue perspective, but from a product perspective to actually enhance you know, our product offering and also build value for the company. And and with that, with, yeah, building value for the company and you, you have the time now where you can, you can actually make, make the product as you're kind of forced into it in a way. Can you, can you take us through just for people to have some context, like this industry itself, like how, how is this typically done in terms of uh, uh, with patients and getting them for these, uh, for recruitment and everything? Because like, uh, you mentioned, like, in, for instance, reading about this is like, it's a broken industry. Mm -hmm. uh, take me through like what the industry kind of looks like currently and how you're, you're changing that. Yeah. So the clinical trial, the patient recruitment industry specifically, um, 86% of clinical trials don't meet their patient targets on time, which means like huge losses for um, the sponsors, for the pharmaceutical companies um, that, you know, actually give money to researchers to conduct this uh, clinical trial. And it's usually the last step 
right? In yeah. in like this R and D uh, that pharmaceutical companies are doing. So usually before they go into human clinical trials, they already did research for 10, 20, sometimes even thirty years on a product. They spent millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes even billions on research, and wow. then it's like this last step that really like let everything breaks apart basically which is (laughs) not ideal and the issue we are seeing is that obviously we have the pharmaceutical companies and then some pharmaceutical companies um, they order CROs contract research organizations to actually manage everything and these CROs um, their incentive is misaligned with that because they are actually getting paid more when a trial takes longer Um, so this is this is why this industry is so broken. Um, <laughs> yeah, that actually these people that should fix everything, they are actually contributing to the to the issue that everything takes so long and that stuff is ineffective um, because they actually benefit from it. Um, and then we are having the research sites. These are the researchers that actually conduct the clinical trials on behalf of pharmaceutical companies because obviously when pharma would do that, they could do funny stuff with the data. (laughs) We don't want that. And these are amazing researchers, um, but they sometimes have to do the marketing themselves to actually get patients in. And, you know, obviously they they are amazing doing their research, but they are not so great usually when it comes to marketing, getting patients in, and, you know, also retaining patients uh, in the trial because being part of a clinical trial for a patient can be a really daunting process, right? You you don't know what's happening. You don't know if there are any side effects. So many people actually drop out about 30, 35%. In every trial, patients actually drop out, which is a huge number as well, and can also uh, kind of mess up the data that's being collected. With that too, then understanding kind of this problem, it seems like you would you definitely need a a stellar team behind the company to make this happen for you to build this out. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've grown the team for Citrus Labs? Growing the team is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> I always thought that you know when when fa- other founders told me that the biggest issue they are having is actually building the team and finding the right talent. I always thought that, nah, it can't be that hard, right? <laughs> but actually, it is extremely hard building the team. Recruiting um, team members, for me, has been probably the biggest challenge, um, especially recruiting sales team members. Because when somebody is in sales, usually they are also pretty good at selling themselves, right? So. Yeah. It can't. It, it's really hard to actually get people that fit into your company culture, and also are really good in what they do. Usually, you can get one or another, but it's really hard to find actually. You know these these two, basically, where they are good fit for the culture and are really good at what they do. For you then, what has been the most helpful to go through this this difficult process of building out the team? Like what's helped you, you know, as you've been hiring more people for the team? So we hire for culture. That's our number one thing right now. Um, we haven't done that for like the first couple of years. We haven't done that. We hired more for skills and it actually uh, fired back at us. So number one thing is really to hire for culture. And then if if they are good at what they do, then, you know, you can train them to be excellent. 
with that hiring for culture, then like, what are some of those components for you that you're looking for in terms of culture, you know, and trying to figure out if they're the right cultural fit for Citrus Labs? So we have been a remote company before uh, COVID hit. Um, so we have been remote for the past uh, four years, actually. So our number one thing is um, to actually hire people that want to work in a remote environment and that have some sort of experience working in a remote environment because it's extremely different compared to an office environment. So that's the number one thing. Number two thing is that they can be resourceful and that they are thriving actually for excellency. You know, everybody makes mistakes, but <laughs> you have to think that, you know, your job, the job you are doing is you, you're basically the best you can be and that you are able to actually do the best um, every day and also do less, do more with less. Um, so this is one thing that we learned also during Textiles is always do more with less. And I think it's, it has served us extremely well so far. Yeah. And to that point then with you having run this company remote for the last four plus years, I mean, what do you think is, is kind of the, the essentials of, of running a remote company? Cause I know a lot of companies during COVID have been forced to be remote and are, you know, still trying to figure it out potentially. And if I imagine you, you figured it out at least, at least more with having more time to do so, what would you say is kind of the essentials of running a remote team? Over communication. That's, a, that's the only thing that really matters. Over-communicate everything. Um, so we are over-communicating uh, how much money we have from the bank, how much revenue we make. Um, we communicate even how many calls our sales team does, how many meetings they had, what was the good, what was the bad, what was the ugly during these meetings. Uh, and also, uh, for example, engineering team, uh, you know, how many bugs they fixed and everybody knows everything in at any time. Um, so I think over communication and being extremely transparent are the keys to success in a remote team. That's great. And I think, yeah, having done that before with, with remote as well, I, I would say that the communication is so, so important. I mean, if you don't mm -hmm. have that, like everything, you're not, you don't see people randomly in the office. So you have to have something to understand everything that's going on. just helpful for, for the team as well. And, and as you look forward, I mean, with, with Citrus Labs and navigating COVID and everything, I mean, what are you looking for in terms of how you grow? Like what, what kind of approaches are you using to, to grow Citrus Labs moving forward? So I think that, you know, because we have a direct sales approach in terms of growing revenue, um, also COVID as, is extremely great because people don't expect you in their office, right? So it's, yeah. uh, it, it actually is less expensive now, which is great. Nobody has to travel. Nice. Um, so, you know, I think also one thing that probably will change post-COVID is exactly this that you don't need to be there you don't you, video chat is fine right or even yeah. like more conversations they are fine and i think this is what will really change post-covid and also help uh, companies grow because they can go further um with the money they have compared to before as you've gone on with, with citrus labs i know you've you've raised a, a couple of different rounds now how has the fundraising side of things gone from that initial funding where you're trying to figure out, you know, how much, how difficult it was, was it easier the second round as you're raising more funding and have you, do you view it any differently as you've gone on and raised funding for the company? So I think, um, it's never easy, right? A second round wasn't easier. 
um, first round was all about, you know, getting getting to a term sheet. And I think it took us about three months to get to a term sheet. Um, I think what was easier during the second round, though, was that we knew what to expect, while during the first round we didn't. And so the preparation for the second round was a little bit easier. And um, for the second round, I think it, it was it was a little bit weird because we had a lot of partner meetings yeah. um, and nobody seemed to write us a term sheet because <laughs> they didn't have conviction in us as a team because we were solving something or we are solving something in the pharmaceutical industry and nobody worked in this industry before. Um, <laughs> and that, that can be a huge, you know, a huge issue because, you know, many Many VCs, they are looking for founder market fit, and we don't have that founder market fit. I would argue that now we have founder market fit because we have been working for the past four years in patient recruitment in the pharmaceutical industry. And, um, you know, it's it's been working actually pretty well for that. Um, so I think this was the biggest issue we had during fundraising. And, and to that point, Suzanne, how did you get past that, not having that expertise and trying to convince people to give you money to build this company in that in that space? How did you get over that? Because I know other founders who will be listening are, are probably dealing with some of the similar issues of you know, there's bound to be founders who don't have expertise in the industry who are trying to solve that problem. Was there anything particular that was, was helpful as you're trying to go through that process? Yeah, I think it's all about building relationships, right? Um, when you pitch to somebody who doesn't know you, then it's hard for them to actually, even though you know numbers are great, business looks great, um, they don't have the conviction to actually invest in you because of your background. But if you keep these people, you know, engaged and update them about your progress and let them into your way of thinking how to approach different issues, different problems in the industry, and actually show to them that you, even though you have never worked in this industry before, you actually have lots of knowledge about this industry. I think this is then what lets our investors to believe in us because they were able to track us for after Texas, for example, for one and a half years, even for two or three years, right, before they invested. And then they were able to see that what we say is actually, you know, it's actually right. And it yeah. actually resonates also with the industry. How are you keeping in touch with with like the VCs and different investors as you've gone along? I mean, have, have you had like a list of people you're updating every every month or something? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, we don't do monthly anymore. We do quarterly now, um, but we, we still have a list of, of people, um, you know, we want to keep engaged and they are getting quarterly updates from us. Gotcha. And I actually, I, who did I talk to? So Joe, uh, Joe Bain, I think his name is from, um, from Grow Credit. He, he still does weekly actually, which is pretty impressive. It's gotta be difficult to do, to put those together every week with it, with like investor updates, but it is helpful then to to have that accountability, they know what you're up to. It makes it way easier when you're raising funding. They're like, yeah, we've been following along the whole time. You know, uh, it makes it easier, not easy to be clear, uh, easier for the next round uh, of funding as well. And and just taking a step back from Citrus Labs for a second, uh, did you always think you'd be an entrepreneur, Suzanne? No, uh, actually, I always wanted to be a consultant. <laughs> so, um, really? Yes. So I went to, to business school. And before that, in, in Europe, um, I uh, did my bachelor degree also in business, economics and social sciences. Um, so my whole career, I was 
prepping to actually uh, started one of the big four consulting companies. And then before I, I entered business school, um, I thought like, what the hell? <laughs> Let's do an internship in a startup. Could be fun. I did that. And this was what converted me to actually become an entrepreneur. What, what was it about that, that internship that you just like, you know, enjoyed the entrepreneurship enough? Like what was it about it that made you switch over to a different thing for sure? So it was the responsibility. Um, I just came, I, I was basically there first week. And then after my first week, it was like, okay, um, so you are just taking over this business unit now because we don't have anybody else to do that. <laughs> and you're just doing, you're, you're now developing a business model and then you have to sell to a couple of companies. I don't care which companies, um, you know, we want to talk to companies in that industry, in that industry, in that industry, and you do, um, you know, just some sales now, and that's it. Um, so basically, after it was a it was a three months internship, and after the three months internship, I actually built a lot for this company. I built out an entire business unit, basically yes. first customers, and uh, that that showed me that probably my talent is a little bit wasted in the consulting industry and that I should rather build something myself. That's awesome. I mean, it, it is quite a fun thing to be an entrepreneur. Obviously, there's a lot of downs as well, and it's difficult, but uh, a lot of rewarding things that come along with being an entrepreneur. It's interesting that you found it from from that internship. What would have happened if you wouldn't have done the internship? Who knows if you'd be where you're at now? Um, and with, with that too, even in the business world, I, I, I think I saw an interview or something, and you were into music before. How did you transition into like wanting to be in the business world in general? Yeah, so when I was a kid, I think when I was 10, 11 years old, I started singing opera in one of the opera houses in in Germany. And I was in the kids choir. I had some solo parts as well. Um, and then I transitioned into the adult choir when I was a teenager. Um, and what what happened is that in in high school there was like a a workshop on also on entrepreneurship on building your own business and it it was really good um i actually really enjoyed it i liked it i think i had like kind of a passion for it and then i looked at what it means to be a musician and studying music and stuff compared to what opportunities I could have when I actually would study business. So I just switched. That's awesome. And you've gone now from to from having this interest in music to interest in business, thinking you're going to be a consultant to then starting a company. You've raised millions of dollars for this company. You've made a lot of progress. You've pivoted. You've done all these different things. Looking, looking back, I mean, what's been the most helpful for you as an entrepreneur to help you kind of grow and learn and just navigate this whole new world of entrepreneurship? I think it's not being in Germany. I think for every person that kind of immigrated or even lived a couple of years in, in another country, I think this is the biggest growing experience you can have. Even just from going from Germany to Austria doesn't seem like a huge step, but it is huge. There's like cultural differences. And yeah. then going from Austria to Scotland, um, I think that probably was the biggest learning experience because it was an entirely different culture. And then again, going from Scotland to the United States, I think that that was also incredible when it comes to learning experience. Also, how you actually do business or how you live your life in these different countries. 
it seems like you have such a such a wealth of of experiences and knowledge in uh, only a few years, which is pretty incredible. And 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 looking back, was there any particular? I'm a big reader, so is there any particular books that you've enjoyed, personal or professional, that kind of helped you along the way? That's a good question. Um, so one book I really enjoyed reading was Bad Blood. Um, oh yeah, Serena's story, and I was just blown away by you know, how, how this could happen. Yeah. It's such a crazy story, right? I I mean, with Theranos, oh my goodness. You just read this book and you think it's like a thriller, but you know, it's, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to believe that it's actually real life. Like yeah. it's, it's kind of even like they had a documentary on it as well. It's just like, you see this entrepreneurial story and she convinced so many, so many people to go along with her vision which is kind of a, a tale on like understanding sales and marketing because she did like convince a lot of very powerful people uh, to go along with her vision. She was very ambitious, but clearly uh, deceiving people in many ways, which is not clearly not great, but um, quite a fascinating thing to learn from from that. And so with you and Citrus Labs having run this for the last number of years and this gone on this entrepreneurial journey as well and experienced so many different things, I mean, at this point, how do you kind of prioritize your day in terms of looking at what you're going to work on day to day, balancing that kind of the short term versus long term vision. It's calendar management. <laughs> <laughs> All about calendar management. So every everything I work on goes into the calendar. Um, so even if I if I exercise or if I go for a walk or um, if I go horse riding. Everything goes into the calendar, and everything is extremely structured. Um, so this is how um, I prioritize my day, and also prioritize what what I'm working on. Do you? I'm all, I'm just curious about this because it's there's so many ways to work. Do you? How do you handle weekends in terms of working on weekends, and how do you handle even just like stopping during a day of work? How do you handle that? Yeah, again, everything goes into the calendar. Uh, <laughs> time goes into the calendar. Otherwise, obviously, you don't do that. Um, I stopped working on Sundays. Uh, sometimes I still do some emails, but I try not to not to work on on Sundays, um, simply because you also need to kind of room to breathe and to also think about other things, so that you actually get. Um, inspiration to actually bring back to you know the work you do um because i think so often i i go just for a hike and this hike is so inspiring um that i actually get my my mind and my brain clear of things i i have been thinking of for so long that after like just a a, a two three four hour hike like everything is extremely clear again in in my head so this is extremely good are there any other things that you do to recharge? Because to your point, I mean, entrepreneurs are notorious to just kind of like workaholics typically. Uh, is there anything else you do to recharge? I mean, hiking is a great one. I'm just curious if there's anything else that you happen to do as well. Yeah, so I do um, sports hit or running every morning for at least 30 minutes. And then I also do horseback riding. And just being around, you know, horses, they're amazing animals is also extremely good. How did you get into horseback riding? I started when I was a kid <laughs> and I never stopped. <laughs> this is really one of one of my my passions, but I would never work with horses. Why is that? 
Uh, it's extremely hard work. It's uh, it's it's hard work for your body, um, and it's it's not so much work actually with with your mind. And I think um, having having your mind at at play, and um, I, I'm really like a, a brain person, right? I need to yeah. think about things, and with horses, it's just about doing stuff. It's all phys- physical on yeah. that side of things. Yeah. We had a company was called MindMate, so clearly yeah. that's something <laughs> that's as well. And looking back to Suzanne, like I, I, you've had a number of years of, of building this company, and uh, I think it's a great amount of experience for others who are trying to build companies as well. I'm just curious if there's any other uh, lessons or or even advice you'd want to give to to other entrepreneurs who you know are aspiring to build businesses as well. Yeah. So my advice is always that you know nobody should listen to advice (laughs) (laughs) i made a lot of mistakes because i listened to advice people gave to me and uh, this is not a good idea to actually listen to people that don't know your business very well don't know the industry very well Um, so this is why my number one tip is always to take every advice with a grain of salt, even when the people you talk to, they actually incredible entrepreneurs, very accomplished, right? Exited their companies for millions or billions. Um, you know, they don't know your company as, as good as you actually do. Um, what I do like, though, is listening to founder stories and just learning from the experience other founders uh, made. But this is not really advice, right? This is just yeah. talking about the the war stories and listening to these war stories. Yeah, there's definitely a, a difference in that. And to your point, I really like what you bringing that up because they're even if someone is successful in a different company, it doesn't mean they know mm-hmm. more than you do about your company because you've been in it day to day for years uh, and understand what you're trying to build. Of course, there's just bound to be people who you know know something that can be helpful, of course, but um, to understand your business specifically is not necessarily the case. So I like that you mentioned that as well. And, and as you're looking back as well, I mean, is entrepreneurship what you thought it might be before you started? That's a good question. Um, yes and no. Um, so what I thought about, so I, I think like your entrepreneurial journey changes, right? So first, when you start out, it's all about, you know, being very operational and do a lot and do more faster as Texas always says, <laughs> right? Um, and you're really in there operationally as a founder you do sales you do marketing you do customer success and then you hire people that do that for you and then a tra- you transition from like this very operational role to like more like a managerial role and this is for me personally this is a little bit hard because i know how to do these things and <laughs> right now maybe i can do it better than the people you know, that we hired because I'm, I'm doing that for so long now. Um, but in the end, it's all about, you know, delegating work to actually scale and grow. So I think this is one thing I have not expected to be that hard. And, and as that transition has happened for you, going from more of that operational role to more of a managerial role, I mean, what has been helpful or what's been the support system behind you to, to help navigate that transition? So for me, it's reading a lot. Uh, reading a lot of founder stories, um, l- listening to talks, listening to podcasts of, yes. you know, about people that actually went through this transition as well, and just learning through 
you know, founder stories, how other founders went through this transition. Yeah, and it is interesting you mentioned that that transition to begin with, because so many of them don't understand that that happens. And you think you're going to be running like doing the same thing where you were doing maybe 100% of the operational stuff. And now you're you're like the thing that you wanted to do is now maybe like 10 or 20% of what you do on a, on a kind of day to day basis, uh, which yeah depends on what you want from a company. But that's kind of the reality is that you grow, that's going to be kind of what happens. Um, and I, one one of the last things I'm just wondering is you you start this this company obviously you have you have co-founders uh, I'm just curious as to how how that has gone with, with the relationship with your your co-founders as you've moved on you know years into this business how has that uh, kind of evolved um, I think everybody of us crew a lot we all crew really a lot um, so. For example, um, the, our CTO, uh, Roger, um, he has the biggest team. Uh, engineering team is currently our biggest team. And he's an amazing manager now. I, I think for him, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard to transition from, you know, just writing code to now, you know, checking everything and uh, managing all the, all the engineers. I think this was fairly easy for him um, to do. Um, and then, um, you know, my other co-founder, Patrick, uh, he's all about product. He's all about, um, you know, the, the customer success team as well. And basically really getting the needs um, of our customers and then actually translating this into a product that works. I think this is uh, really great what he did there, but I think he also struggled a little bit when it comes to, you know, then delegating stuff because he he's like, oh my God, I can just design that in like you know, 20 <laughs> minutes and this guy needs like a whole day for it. So I think um, I think this is, we, we crew a lot when it comes to, uh, you know, from the operational part to now becoming more and more. A manager and and with that just the last major question like what is kind of the the end goal the big vision for for citrus labs we want to be the number one software um, that sites use to actually streamline their patient recruitment process and our goal is to um, help sites to actually waste less hours when it comes to patient recruitment and also improve the patient experience in clinical trials and Suzanne, where can people go to learn more uh, about you and all you're doing? It's uh, www.citruslabs.com. Great. I will be sure to link all that up in the show notes, everything we've kind of discussed here as well at justgogrind.com slash podcast. Suzanne, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.